chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, and the reason I begin every Sunday and this time by inviting you to open your Bibles is we want you to know that we're, what we say from this pulpit, we're not making it up, um, it's coming straight from uh, the Word of God, and um, we're thankful for the power of His Word, and we trust the power of, of His Word. So if you're new here today, let me just welcome you to week 8 of a series that has us walking through um, the book of Colossians a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. He wasn't in prison because of a lot of speeding tickets. He wasn't in prison for any other things that we could think about. He was in prison because he was telling the world about Jesus. And he was turning the world upside down, which in reality he was turning the world right side up um, with the gospel. And so Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's waiting to have his head cut off, and he's writing letters. And his letters aren't Dear John letters. Um, They're not poor, pitiful me letters. Um, He's writing letters to the churches, to the church at Colossus. He's writing saying, Jesus is awesome and he's enough. And this is the letter that we come to and that we've been in for the last seven weeks and and today our eighth week. And so far in this series, we've unpacked um, that the the basic truth about Christianity is, get this, Jesus It's all about Jesus. If you want to know what Christianity is about, you look to the person of Jesus. We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Think about where we've been in this book. No one else is the image of the invisible God. No one else is the firstborn over all creation. No one else is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. No one else is before all things. No one else holds everything together. No one else is the head of the church. No one else has the fullness of deity or the fullness of God dwelling within them. No one else can reconcile us to God. No one else reveals to us the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And no one else is able to nourish us now and forever. It's Christ, and it's Christ alone. And the point is, is there is no one like Him, and He deserves the preeminence. He deserves first place in all of our lives. He deserves first place in the church. Therefore, we don't just tip the cap to Jesus. We don't just learn a few things about Jesus. We fall on our knees, and we say, worthy is the Lamb. This is the picture of who he is. So Paul is trying to get the Colossian church to understand and to grasp their identity in him. And what we know is that people can get their identity from a lot of different things. You know, in my high school years, and it seems like a long time ago, but it was really 20-ish years. In my high school years, I felt more like a chameleon at times than a human. I felt like I had to constantly adapt and to become something to get my identity. I had to be this, I had to be that, I had to be something else, all of which I really wasn't good at. But I I would try to fit in here and fit in there and find my identity here, there, somewhere else. And maybe some of you um, can relate. And Maybe if you're refusing to relate, go and look at a few of your pictures, maybe way back from high school, and you're like, what was I thinking? What in the world was that about? You know, I, have, I mean, I have pictures at my mom's house with me with a flat top about this high. Um, I, we won't let those get out. Um, I, I think, no, we're not, not letting them get out. I mean, this was like my vanilla ice days, I guess. I was, they had it high and tight. Um, but, you know, I don't know what I was thinking, but it was a, a picture of a young man seeking and desiring identity. Yet for the child of God, our identity should come from who we are in Christ. 
The picture is we have been created by him. We've been created through him. We've been created for him. This is our picture. There is not one part of the universe. There's not one part of our lives by which Christ cannot say mine. Mine. It's all mine. Yet, not only are we created by him and for him, which is really kind of a shallow understanding because there's not a person alive that hasn't been created by Christ and hasn't been created for Christ. So we go a little deeper here. The picture goes deeper. As children of God, not only have we we've been created by God, get this, we've been recreated by God. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. We praise God for that. Therefore, we're not seeking, we're not here seeking behavior modification. This isn't about come here and try your best. No, we get new life in Him. This is the picture by which we've been reconciled to God in Christ, by which um, Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. Let me just make this very clear this morning. The words hanging over our salvation today are not do this and do that and you will be saved. No, the words hanging over our salvation today are it is finished. Those are the words, meaning salvation is not about our doing. Salvation is about what has already been done for us in Christ. And in case you don't know, he's done it all. He has done it all. Yet that doesn't mean, and I feel like, and just for the next few minutes, I'm going to take you kind of a long way around, but just just follow with me here. That doesn't mean that we're saved and then we do nothing. It's not what it means. To put it in the terms that relate to our text, We are not saved by doing the law, but in being saved through Christ, there is a law written on our hearts. His law is written on us. And I know how we feel about the law, whether it be the law in our country or whether it be the biblical law. Oftentimes it doesn't lift us up. We view it as being um, a weight upon us. It holds us back. And that's kind of how we think about it. the problem in the church is that many people still believe that they have to add something to Jesus, so there's something they have to do, um, trust Jesus and this in order to be saved. Or others believe that in coming to Jesus, they're completely free from the law, so they can do whatever they want to. They come to Jesus, and their lives are just free. They have the green light on everything. And sometimes we, we think about the law of God in the same way that sometimes we think about the laws of our land. Many of our laws were established in the late 1800s and the early 1900s when um, the U.S. was rapidly changing from an agricultural to an industrial um, society. Some of the laws that were on the books have been repealed. Others of them are still on the books yet aren't enforced. So let me just give you a few of the laws that are still on books in some places yet not enforced. It is illegal in Wilbur, Washington to ride an ugly horse. It's illegal for chickens to cross the road in Quitman, Georgia. In Mohave County, Arizona, if anyone is caught stealing soap, they must wash with it until the soap is gone. So that might be a good thing to enforce in some places. In California, it's illegal to lick toads. Not toes, but toads like frogs. Both are gross. Let's... In, in St. Louis, Missouri, it's illegal for a fireman to a fireman to rescue a woman wearing a nightgown. Just think about that. You'd be out of luck. In Kentucky, it's illegal to re- remarry the same man four times. I, I guess it gets weird at the family reunions. I don't know. That. 
Some of you didn't get my Kentucky joke. I'm sorry. Sorry, that was my... Eric, forgive me for that one. Um, In New York, it's against the law to throw a ball at someone's head for fun. (laughs) Now, only in New York, I guess, would that be a rule. But sometimes, think about this. We view the Old Testament, some of the laws, kind of with the same way. In fact, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, you've got to go... People were doing this in order for God to say, don't do this. I mean, it's like I read Leviticus and I'm like, what were people thinking? That God would have to say, hey, guys, you can't do that. I mean, they were doing it. And God says, no, let's cut that out. And and just think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were 613 commands, 365 negative commands. And I don't mean bad commands. I mean, don't do this. And then 248 positive commands. So do this. So you have 613 thou shalts or thou shalt not um, in the Old Testament. And, And what we know is that in the midst of those 613 commands, Jesus didn't come on the on the scene saying, I'm just gonna sweep all of those under the rug and act like they don't exist. That's not what Jesus said. Instead, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it to make sure it was fulfilled. So think about this. And this is something that many Christians struggle with. In no way are we called to ever set aside the law of God as if it doesn't matter. As if God saves us and then it becomes okay for us not to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or it's okay for us to worship idols. It's okay for us to disrespect our parents or to lie, to steal, to commit adultery, to covet. Think about that. That's what sometimes we say. Do I have to obey the law? Um, So we come to Christ, we get him, and then we dishonor him in everything that we do? No, that's not what we do. But in the same way, neither do we act like we can somehow do anything in order to earn our salvation. So this is kind of where we're going to be this morning. The truth is that we all must come to know, to cherish, to declare that there is freedom in Christ. There's freedom in him. We don't have to keep trying harder. There's freedom in Christ and surrender to him. So if you're able to, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23 together today. And then we're going to unpack these verses together. And I'm excited about where we are going. So it says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and in promoting, or in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we just come before you, come to your word again. 
just desiring you, God. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. Help us today, God, to hear you, to respond to you, to obey you. God, just show us today, afresh and anew, the freedom that we have in Christ. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the paragraph that we just read is probably one of the most difficult um, paragraphs in all of the book of Colossians to interpret and to um, apply. Yet the point that Paul is trying to make and trying to show us is what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. And how we must walk in freedom in and with the gospel. So the, the picture is this. The gospel is this. So if you want to know what the gospel is, here's the gospel. I am accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. So the gospel is I'm accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. That's the gospel. Now religion says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. So that's gospel, I'm accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. Religion, I obey and God will accept me. Martin Luther, you know how I feel about Martin Luther is celebrating 500 years coming up um, in a few days. But Martin Luther's fundamental insight um, was that the principle of religion is the deep default of the human heart. Meaning, the heart continues to work in that way even after conversion to Christ. Basically, it's like this. Even though we embrace the principle of the gospel our hearts will always return to the default setting, which is we think we can earn something. So your heart and my heart, our default setting is you tell me what I got to do to do it or to get it, and I'll get it done. That's the default setting of every heart in this room. We think we can earn what God has done for us. Therefore, we must be on guard. Every single one of us in this room must be on guard against the form of religion that we think we have to add something to Christ for our salvation. It's true that we're free from sin. We're free from having to do anything to earn our salvation. We're free from rules that enslave us while not being free to do whatever we want to do. So this morning, we're going to unpack today three truths that will, will lift high our freedom in Christ while calling our attention to dangers that exist within and, and with, without. So the first truth is this. We are free from looming shadows. So we are free from looming shadows. So in verses 16 and 17, Paul calls the attention of the, the Colossian church to stop passing or don't let others pass judgment and says in regards to food, in regards to drink, in regards to the festivals and all of these things. And then he says, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what Paul says is sometimes we get busy and we allow ourselves to worship the shadows of Christ while failing to worship Christ. And think about this. What Paul is addressing here is the error that Jesus plus religion and religious observances will save you. Some had snuck into the church at Colossus, and they were teaching that there were certain foods and certain drinks that you could not participate in and still be saved. And then they were saying you had to fulfill the ceremonial law. That you had to have that hanging over your head. And if you, don't, if you didn't fulfill the ceremonial law and the festivals, you were not saved. And let me just say this very, very bluntly. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. 
The grace of God will always be a threat to the flesh of man. The grace of God will always be a threat to your flesh. For grace runs counter to human pride and to to impulse where we want to boast in our accomplishments. You know what our flesh demands? Our flesh demands that we get the credit. Every single one of us in this room, our default is we want the credit. We want to hear our names called. We want to read our names in the paper. Yet, grace demands that Jesus and Jesus only receives the credit. There's a picture between our flesh and between the grace of God. Our sinful nature doesn't like the idea of grace because we want to earn it. Therefore, let me just say this again bluntly. There may be some here this morning that you think you're saved just because occasionally you come to church and you're wrong. One pastor, I heard one pastor say this week, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sticking your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. I mean, it just doesn't make sense, yet that's what we think in our minds. So if you've got this idea of belief plus external list of things that you do will save you, you're wrong. We said this a few weeks ago, Jesus plus something equals nothing. If you try to add anything else to Jesus, you get nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything. Everything you will ever need, everything you will ever desire is in Christ and in Christ alone. And then Paul drills deeper. And Paul shows them that the rituals that they were being told to do were just nothing more than shadows. The reality was was Christ. Once you realize the reality, you you don't need the shadow anymore. You don't need that. Every part of the law of Moses, every part of the Old Covenant, every part of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, and he fulfilled every part of it. Every ceremony, every sacrifice, everything, Jesus was the fulfillment of it. In fact, get this, every book of the Old Testament points to Jesus. We might not think it or we might not know it. Let me just show you real quick and just endure with me for just a second. In Genesis, Jesus is the Word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, He is the Passover lamb whose blood is sprinkled on the doorpost of our heart so that we can escape slavery. In Leviticus, He is the temple, the holy place whereby we meet God. In Numbers, He is the ever-present God, our pillar of cloud by day and our pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, He is the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. In Joshua, He is our conquering warrior leading us into the promised land and judges he's the broken savior rising up to rescue us and Ruth he is our kinsman redeemer in first and second Samuel he's the pure-hearted shepherd who rushed out to face our giants all alone in first and second kings he's the righteous ruler in first and second chronicles he's the restorer of the kingdom and and Um, Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. And Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of broken walls. And Esther, he is our advocate, risking his life to restore us to royalty. And Job, he is our living redeemer. In the book of Psalms, he's the one who hears our cries. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is wisdom personified. In Isaiah, 
he is, or excuse me, in Song of Solomon, he is our lover and our bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. He is our prince of peace, the one who is wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. In Jeremiah, he is the spirit that writes God's laws on our hearts. In Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the river of life, bringing healing to the, the nations. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, he is the ever-faithful husband pursuing his unfaithful bride. In Joel, he is the restorer of all that the enemy eats. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the judge of all of the earth. In Jonah, he is the prophet cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in from the storm. Don't miss this. In Micah, he's the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is our reason to rejoice even when the fields are empty. In Zephaniah, he's the great reformer. In Haggai, he's the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he's the pierced savior whom every eye on earth will behold. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness rising up with healing in his wings. He is the theme of the Old Testament. Every book, every word points to Jesus. You miss him, you miss it all. You miss him, you miss it all. In the words of Blaise Pascal, he says, Jesus Christ is the center of everything. He's the object of everything. He who does not know him knows nothing in, um, of the order of the world and knows nothing of himself. Here's the point today, brothers and sisters. May we not get caught up in the shadows when Christ is our everlasting substance. Don't get caught up with somebody telling you this is what you have to do, something that points to Christ. No, no, no. We go to Christ and to Christ alone. In him we have all we will ever need. In him is all we ever need. So we are free from looming shadows. Secondly, we are free from Christless substitutes. We're free from Christless substitutes. Listen to what Paul says. He says, let no one disqualify you. In verses 18 and 19, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. It says, puffed up without reason, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body grows with a growth that is from God. Everyone in this room was created with a spiritual nature. It's part of who we are. It's unavoidable. It's why... Uh, G.K. Chesterton says this, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. Let me say it again, when we cease to worship God, we don't just worship nothing, we worship anything. We are worshipers. If we're not worshiping God, we will worship something. We will grab something that will become our worship, our praise, our life. And for the people at Colossians, um, they were told to worship through asceticism, which is basically giving up bodily um, pleasure and, and goods and even getting to a point where you will punish yourself and you will whip yourself and beat yourself for the sake of thinking you're earning something. And that's kind of where um, they were being taken. And then they had the worship of angels. And then, of course, the worship of anything that was was mystical, all at the neglect of the head of the church, which is Christ. And let me just show you a quick picture of one of these. If you take in the Bible the picture of angels and worship, 
The Bible makes it very, very clear that heavenly angels worship God. In Isaiah's vision, the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. On the day that Christ entered the world as a baby, we hear the angels celebrating glory to God in the highest. In um, the book of Revelations, we see the angels rising up and lifting their voices to exclaim, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. Yet not only do angels worship God, get this, angels desire for us to worship God. Angels want us to join them in the worship of God. Their, their joy increases when we see God as a prize and we worship him. In Luke 15, 10, Jesus says, There is joy before the angels, in, or the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus said, Angels rejoice even more when they see my creation, you, praising him. When they see us praising God like we should. In Revelation chapter 19, after an amazing worship service in heaven. In fact, I want you to think about this. Revelation 19, it begins with these words, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And it means praise the Lord. But um, sometimes we miss this. We think about all the gospels. We think, let me step back for a second. We think about the book of, of Psalms. All over the book of Psalms, we see the word hallelujah, praise the Lord, all throughout. Then we get the New Testament, and all throughout the Gospels, not one time does the word hallelujah appear. Not one time. All the way through the epistles, not one time is hallelujah, praise the Lord. It is not until, so from Matthew 1, not until we get to Revelation chapter 19 do we get the first time where hallelujah, praise the Lord, is mentioned you got to read it of what's happening. It's, all, it's like everything has been hold, held up to that moment, and all of a sudden, praise the Lord. But what happens is John gets caught up in that moment. And so John, being caught up in that moment, just falls down at one of the angels' feet and begins to worship him. And it says in Revelation 19, it says, And he, being the angel, said to me, I love it, listen to this, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Then hear this, worship God. The angel looks at John and says, don't worship me. I'm a creation just like you. Worship God. And the truth is, get this, brothers and sisters, we will always find something to worship. If it's not angels, it'll be Mary. If it's not Mary, it'll be saints of old. If it's not saints of old, it'll be ourselves. And if it's not ourselves, it'll be our traditions or our golden calves that we carry around and, and becomes our source of, of worship. And the, the picture is angels who understand how prone we are to worship other things look at us even now and say, worship God. Stop worshiping the other foolish stuff and worship him. Worship Him and worship Him alone. And let me just say this. If we get caught up worshiping Christless substitutes, look, look at verse 19 with me. Look at what it says. Here's our definition when we get caught up in not worshiping Christ. It says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. 
Meaning, brothers and sisters, if we get caught up in Christless substitutes, we will not grow as Christ desires for us to grow, for his life will not flow through us. There's no life there. It was Joseph Parker, not, not Ken to Peter Parker, but Joseph Parker who said, the church can never be right until it is right in its relationship with the headship of Jesus. Is he the head? Is he the center? Is he the one that we look to and praise? We are free from Christless substitutes. Let's not worship anything else. Let's worship him and him alone. And then the third and final truth is this. We are free from self-made religion. We're free from self-made religion. And we're going to dig a little deeper here. Look at verse 20. Paul says this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And then verse 23, he says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so verse 20, what, what verse 20 means is this. And please hear what I'm saying because you don't want to miss this. What Paul is saying is that we are by nature a bunch of trained circus animals. And if you put a hoop in front of us, we are going to jump through it. I mean, that's the point. That's what Paul's saying is we as sinful humans, all you got to do is say, hey, jump through this hoop of worship. And we go, woo, woo. And we, that's just what we cannot help ourselves. If you give us something that we have to do and we think we're doing it, we will just keep jumping back and forth, just back and forth. And we will find joy in it, delight in it. But here's the point. We're not worshiping God in it. We're worshiping ourselves in it. But that's who we are. We are, if you don't hear anything else, again, I say, I'm saying it twice, we are trained circus animals who will jump through any hoop that anybody places before us and will pat ourselves on the back while doing it. Let me, let me say this. It amazes me how weak our flesh is when it comes to spiritual things, but how strong our flesh is when it comes to religious things. Meaning... I just don't have the strength to read my Bible. I just don't have the strength to do it. But I'm up here serving the best I can. I mean, it's amazing how when we think we're earning something, we can find all the strength in the world. But when it's about us increasing in our spiritual discipline so we can delight in God, oh, our flesh is so weak. But when we're doing something where we can somehow get the credit, our flesh becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Let me just say this. Anytime someone tries to enforce regulations upon us while ignoring a relationship with God that God wants with us, there you will find self-made religion. Just do this. You'll be okay. Do this. You'll be okay. Do anything that would lead you away from relationship with God is self-made religion. Let me just say, let me just say this. And let me say as clear as I possibly can. God doesn't want your service, doesn't need your service. He wants your heart. And if he has your heart, your service will follow. It'll follow. You, you don't have, people who understand that, and people who understand the grace of God, you don't have to beg them to do things. People who understand God's grace, you don't have to beg them because they don't, they're not saying, I can't believe I have to do that. People who understand grace are going, I get to do this. 
I get to serve God. I get to use my gifts and abilities as weak as they are to bring glory to Him. It's not what I have to do. It's what I get to do. It's a picture of the glory of God. But when you get to self-made religion and rule keeping, it only feeds the flesh. And pretty soon, let me just tell you what happens. And this is going to maybe step on a few toes. When we get into self-made religion, we begin to look down upon other people who aren't doing our self-made religion as well as we are. They're not doing things like we're doing as well as we are. And pretty soon, we begin to think about them the same way the Pharisee in Jesus' story in, in Luke 18 thought about the tax collector. In Luke 18, the, the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men swindlers and unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week i pay tithes of all i get and just think about this it's right not to be a swindler that's a good thing i hear people sometimes you know hey i'm a good dad I, i pay my child support you're supposed to you're supposed to. Or, I'm a good person. I, I haven't been to jail. You're not supposed to go to jail. So let's, let's stop like lifting high things that we're not supposed to be doing or supposed to be doing. But here's the point. We're not suppo- it's, not, it's right not to be a swindler, not to be unjust, not to be an adulterer. It's right to fast if you're fasting with the right reasons. It's right to give and give generously and faithfully. It's right to study God's word. It's right to spend time in prayer. It's right to gather together as God's people. But when you see that as a performance, when you see it as something that you have to do, as your picture of self-made religion, you're acting in the flesh. And flesh will never produce godliness. Here's the problem. Most of us are really good at spotting Pharisees. We're really good at spotting people who are self-righteous until we look in the mirror and for some reason we just can't spot that one. We just can't spot the Pharisee in us. We can spot the Pharisee in everybody else, but when we're looking at the mirror, we miss that one. And the picture is that Pharisee heart is in all of us. It's our default position if we are not careful. How can I earn it? How can I do it? The last two sections, let me just end in this way. So in closing, so that's meant to either give you hope or show you that we're not quite there yet. Um, but in, in closing, the last two sections that we've covered together as a faith family, verse 6 and verse 13, um, both started with the words, therefore. We said last week that anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you should always ask, what is therefore, therefore? So why is the word therefore? What is the word therefore, therefore? It always points us back to something else. So in verse 6, the word therefore is pointing us back to who Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the one that reveals to us the mysteries and the majesty of God. But in verse 16, the word therefore is pointing us back not to who Christ is, but to what Christ has done, meaning that he has died for our sins and on the cross was nailed the legal demands of um, or the legal demands and our sin nailed to the cross. We bear our sin no more. As the writer says, and the hymn writer, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. All the demands of the law have been nailed to the cross. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we don't have to add anything to Jesus. 
We don't have to add anything to him. He is enough. And we dare not take anything away from him. The cross is enough. Jesus is enough. I read something on Friday that really stirred my soul. And then I heard the, the choir's message today. And it just kind of went hand in hand. And the, the thought that I read today says this. If I die tomorrow, I will be with Jesus. If I wake tomorrow, or if I die tomorrow, I'll be in the presence of Jesus. If I wake up tomorrow, the presence of Jesus will be with me. In that case, brothers and sisters, we cannot fail. We cannot lose. If I die tomorrow, I wake up in his presence. If I wake up tomorrow, he's with me. He's with me. There's freedom there. There's hope there. There's joy there. There's strength there. There's salvation there. And we don't turn away from the one who brings that to us, who saves us and, and keeps us, who will be with us. We'd never turn away from him. He will forever be enough. I ask you today, have you ever come to Christ on his terms? Have you ever come to him as Savior and Lord? If you haven't, may today be the day of salvation. Or maybe, just maybe, you're here and like the Colossian church, you've allowed some hoop to become your identity marker and you're jumping through that hoop as well as you can and you're doing so good in jumping through that hoop, but that hoop isn't a relationship with Jesus. That hoop isn't doing anything to bring um, you life. It's bringing you in more and more bondage. And today you need to throw that hoop away for the glory of God, and you need to press again to the heart of the one who wants to have a relationship every day with you. And we don't find our life in rules and regulations. We find our life in a relationship with Jesus. Amen. May we do that again in a fresh and a new. So I'm going to ask you to stand up. We're going to call the musicians forward, enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say if God is asking you to do anything that the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedoms. May there be freedom today for you to do that, we pray. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We thank you that we are free from external rules and hoops, God, of, of things that we might think um, bring you happiness or bring us into a relationship with you. Lord, help us today to remember that the words hanging over our salvation are not do this or do that. The words hanging over our salvation are, it is finished. Christ, you have done everything needed for our salvation. I pray for anyone in this room today that's never rested in that. That's never truly come to you, Jesus, trusting you as Savior and Lord. Leaning all that they are upon you. Trusting that, Jesus, you did for them what they could never do for themselves and dying for their sins and rising from the dead. That you have made a way for them to get to God. Father, may today be the day of salvation for any who don't know you. And Father, I pray for that brother and sister today that is tied up in self-made religion or Christless substitutes, that today you would set them free from that bondage, from that filth, God. Set them free from it and help them today to find their freedom again in Christ and in Christ alone. For who the Son sets free is free indeed. 
Help us to walk in that freedom today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.